Good morning, everyone. My name is Terry Plath, and I'm one of the elder pastors here at Christ Redeemer Church. Uh, my wife, Marin, and our four children have been um, a part of this local body since we started around five years ago, and it's been a blessing to be a part of it. Uh, pastors Brett and Thomas had a national meeting of the Treasuring Christ Together Network pastors this past week, and so they were away, and um, that meant an opportunity for one of us non-vocational elders to, uh, to preach, and I'm honored to, uh, to have that um, uh, privilege today. Here at Christ Redeemer Church, we believe what 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 2 and 1 Peter 5 instruct, that those who are called to be overseers or elders in the church are also supposed to be able to teach God's word. And that's why you'll see from time to time some of us non-vocational elders here up front. And um, part of the calling of an elder is to be a pastor or a shepherd as well. And that's why you'll see pastor in front of our name, even though... Uh, in the typical classical American sense, we would not be considered pastors because we have other jobs. But uh, it's, it's, it's my privilege to be here as, as an elder, pastor, and teacher this morning. Before we start, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I just pray that the words of my mouth, Lord, that the meditation of my heart and our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. I pray that... Um, your word would go out powerfully, Lord. You uh, said in Isaiah that, that when your word is proclaimed, it will not return void. And so as your word goes forth, I pray that it would touch every single heart, Lord. May your spirit rise up within our hearts and receive the word that's proclaimed. Change our hearts, change our minds, Lord, uh, today. Change our actions as a result of, of what we talk about today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So the last time I had an opportunity to preach was uh, back in March, and uh, those of you who are here may recall that we examined John chapter 21, which is where uh, Jesus meets Peter at the shore of, Lake, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, uh, just days after Jesus had risen from the dead. And uh, Peter had gone away uh, after denying Jesus three times on the night of Jesus' death, and, uh, and now Jesus was back to restore Peter to ministry, and he asked him three times, Peter... Uh, do you love me? And Peter each time said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And, and each time Jesus said, um, you know, feed my sheep, care for my lambs. Well, that happened roughly AD 30, in, in the year 30 AD. Now, after that, a newly transformed Peter witnessed Jesus' ascension and received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, preached an amazing message there in Jerusalem that day of Pentecost. And then sometime in the early AD 50s, uh, between 50 and 54 AD, Peter ended up going to Rome. And he eventually wrote this letter of First Peter that I'm going to preach on the first chapter of uh, sometime around AD 62 or 63, so somewhere between 10 and 12 years after he arrived in Rome. Now about that same time, in AD 54, a new emperor came to power in Rome by the name of Nero. Nero was a brutal man paranoid about plots against him and who over time became convinced that this fledgling new movement, religious sect called the Way or Christianity, was plotting against him. Christians in that day did not conform to the culture uh, of Rome, to their moral values, and therefore they were considered antisocial uh, and a threat to the unity of the empire. And so they refused, because they refused to worship the Roman gods, of which the Caesars considered themselves to be part of, uh, they did not participate in temple rites or pledge allegiance to the emperor by honoring him as God. 
So Nero was the foremost among the persecutors of the Christians, and in July of the year 64, after, after Peter wrote his first letter, but before he wrote Second Peter, a fire destroyed much of Rome. And word on the street was that Nero had ordered his servants to start that fire to clear the way for an ambitious building project that he had to preserve his name for centuries to come. The citizens of Rome were outraged. Uh, even if he hadn't started the fire, they felt like he did nothing to stop it. And uh, he was unconcerned about them. And a rumor spread even that Nero had actually played music while Rome was burning. You've heard that he played while he fiddled while Rome burned. But Nero couldn't tamp down this criticism, and so he turned to the Christians, already a suspicious and misunderstood minority, and, and they became his scapegoat. He made it a crime to believe in Christ, uh, and actually denounced believers as atheists since uh, they didn't believe in the emperor as God. He fueled rumors about their private gatherings, going so far as to claim that the Lord's Supper, which we just took part in, was cannibalism. And Nero, Nero tortured Christians as a barbaric spectacle. Some were crucified. Others were sewn into animal skins and torn apart by wild dogs who chased after them. Still others were covered with pitch or tar and hung as lights on poles to light up Nero's evening festivities. It was a brutal time for Christians. They were in peril. And he had set a precedent, and Christians were now anticipating further persecution. And resentment continued to grow against the Christians um, for their opposition to Roman culture. You can look at 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4, and also Acts 19 to see examples of how that was. So this persecution, which started in Rome then, began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And as it spread, it touched places like the places that Peter wrote this letter to. And it began to affect Christians' lives in those, in those regions. The miraculous fact is that Christianity did not get snuffed out. It prospered in spite of all that. You see, there was no greater witness to the world and the surrounding cultures to the legitimacy of Jesus' death and resurrection, the claims made by Christians, uh, than to see this persecution responded to by love rather than hate. And Christianity spread to the point where by the early 300s AD, a little after 200 years after Peter wrote this, the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian and declared that not only should the persecution of Christians cease, but that he legalized Christianity via the Edict of Milan in three thirteen. In fact, the Nicene Creed, which is still one of the bedrock creeds of Christianity, uh, resulted directly from the First Council of Nicaea, which he convened in 325 AD. So, Peter wrote this letter that we're going to read as an encouragement to those who were suffering these atrocities in the name of Christ. And throughout the letter, you will see uh, Peter encouraging Christians to rejoice, to consider themselves blessed, to love one another deeply and their enemies, and to not retaliate in hate by enduring the trials that were not unlike the trial that Jesus himself had suffered when he was crucified. Um, the intent of this letter is to teach us as believers how to live victoriously in the midst of a hostile and persecuting culture. And I don't know about you, but I feel that force coming ever more in our culture today. It's a good word for us today. There are, there are things I'm sure to come. In short, we as Christians are called to live holy lives as exiles, aliens and strangers, and to thrive in a hostile culture that's fueled by a hope in the gospel and an earnest brotherly and sisterly love 
that's rooted in gospel-centered community. So that's my message for you today. With that as a backdrop, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, um, we would encourage you just to slip your hand up and one of our elders, uh, I'm sorry, one of our ushers can deliver a Bible to you. We'd be happy to give you one as a gift. So if you need a Bible, please don't hesitate to, uh, to raise your hand. So let's, uh, let's start in verse 1 of 1 Peter 1, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, You also be holy with all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call him on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through living the living and abiding word of God. For... All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. So Peter offered a lot of wisdom in this chapter for how we should live as exiles, 
which literally in the Greek means those who are, reside as aliens, in a hostile culture that was growing increasingly hostile toward Christians. We would do well to pay heed to Peter's wisdom and apply it to our own lives uh, in our day uh, here and now. What I'd like to do this morning is break this passage down into four different sections and take some time to dwell on the theme of each of these four sections. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. The key theme of this section uh, is when we place our faith in Jesus, we become exiles. When we place our faith in Jesus, we become exiles. This letter was written to the elect, that is, those who were chosen before time by God to be in Jesus, and those who called themselves disciples of Jesus Christ in what is now modern-day Turkey. Many of these were likely Jewish believers. They understood these references that Doug had talked about uh, because Peter was called uh, primarily to, to preach the gospel and, uh, to the Jews. Pay special notice to the fact that there's this Trinity reference, awesome Trinity reference, right up front, made by Peter. He talks about the Father who foreknew, foreknew and chose the elect. By the power of the Holy Spirit, were made sanctified. For obedience to Jesus, which is what a disciple does, is obeys his master, by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. So notice here that obedience is made possible by three things. Number one, the Father's uh, foreknowledge and election enables it. Number two, the Spirit's power also enables it. Number three, the sprinkling of Jesus' blood enables that. Now, if you actually step through those backwards, an election can be a really difficult uh, theological concept to understand. But if I find if we step through it backwards, you can work your way back to be assured of your election. If you have, by faith, put yourself beneath the sprinkling of Jesus' blood for the remission of your sins, then it's clear, that's a clear signal that the Holy Spirit has worked in your, uh, is working in, in power in your heart, which itself is clear evidence of the Father's foreknowledge and election. And that will prove itself out over time. It's much easier, I find, to work, work things backward this way. And it's, it's a dis- this discovery at the end that is so rich that God chose you before time. Now, in verse 1, the reference to exiles, as I said, the Greek, uh, the word is peripodemos, which literally means those who reside as aliens. Those who have, uh, have repented of their sin and humbled themselves before Jesus and are now in Christ have been born again. Jesus said in John 3, 3. And are now new creations, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know that the spirit or God of the age, Satan, stands in direct opposition to, to Jesus' followers. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 talks about that. So to join Jesus as a disciple means that we are choosing to become an alien of the spirit of this age, the spirit of this world, this worldly system, this culture, uh, that has been granted to Satan for a, for a period of time, but will eventually be taken back when Christ returns. In summary, when we place our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we become aliens to this way of the world operating. That may not sound all that attractive. So Peter then moves on to point number two in verses 3 through 12. The second point is, as exiles, we have an eternal living hope, which is rooted in the gospel. As exiles, we have an eternal living hope, which is rooted in the gospel. So lest you feel bad about this 
um, you know, decision to become an alien, which doesn't always feel great, we must regularly remember that there are many benefits. It's the hope of the resurrection of Jesus, which one day we will experience ourselves, that helps us to remain firm in our faith, even when the winds of trial blow in our lives. Following Jesus will ultimately lead to times of trial. But we know from verses 6 and 7 that the various trials which now grieve us actually test and prove the genuineness of our faith. They're a good thing. We will one day be rewarded with the heavenly reward that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the hope that we hold on to in verse 4. John Piper says this about this this passage in this refining fire of trial. Quote, In God's design, our distresses are like the fire that refines gold from its impurities. When gold is melted in the fire, the impurities float to the top and can be removed. When the refining fire is over, the gold is even more valuable, and so it is with your faith in God. You have faith. You trust his promises, but there are impurities in it. There are elements of murmuring and pessimism, and I speak from painful experience. And there are tendencies to trust money and position and popularity alongside God, dirt mingled with the gold of faith. These impurities in our faith hinder our fullest experience of the goodness and greatness of God. So God designs to refine our faith with the fires of trial and distress. His aim is that our faith will be more pure and more genuine. That is, that it would be, we would be more utterly dependent on him and not on things or other persons for our joy. End quote. And we can also see in verse 7 that the end result of these trials we endure in the name of Jesus will result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So cling to this hope. I'm sure many of us are going through trials today. If you're enduring a trial right now, just know that, number one, God is using it to purify and legitimize your faith. And number two, that it will not last forever. Clinging to the thinnest thread of hope in Jesus during these times will be rewarded one day. Don't lose hope. So we have been born again into a new inheritance that makes us strangers and aliens within the wider culture. We live at the margins of society. In, when we uh, do our um, new member uh, induction, we have a, um, a number of questions that we ask here at CRC. And one of those is, um, do you promise to walk circumspectly with the world? And I like that word. Because it doesn't mean that we're disengaged from the world, but we are walking on the outside, circumspectly, around it, looking in, engaged with it, but not being in the middle of it. In the world, but not of the world, is another way to say it. Which leads us to point number three, from verses 13 through 21. As exiles, we are called to a gospel-fueled life of holiness. As exiles, we're called to a gospel-fueled life of holiness. So Peter puts out this clear call to holiness in the final 13 verses of chapter 1. That's, that's over half of this chapter is spent on this topic of holiness, so it's an important topic. And it's fitting that in the light of the hope of the gospel that we've just talked about, he set a nice foundation for where holiness should come from. I think we need to be really clear. Holiness does not come from our own strength, not from our own goodness. We cannot produce holiness on our own. It has to come through this enduring uh, and, and connection to the vine of Jesus. So uh, it must be important for him to dedicate this much space up front in his initial letter to the churches. Uh, I want to spend some time on this particular topic of holiness because I've sensed a growing tendency in my life over the years 
and I see it in the life of the church in America today, uh, that we, we are downplaying personal holiness. Perhaps it's out of this false notion that uh, to, uh, striving for holiness is somehow going to taint our uh, reliance on grace and the gospel and that it becomes works righteousness, uh, which, you know, it isn't. Um, faith is the root. Uh, holiness is the fruit. Good works are the fruit. Or perhaps it's out of a thought that striving to be holy or to follow God's standards for proprietary, uh, propriety and behavior will make us irrelevant to the culture and world around us, especially as that culture goes further and further away from what God's standards of, of truth and righteousness are. But that's not true either. Uh, that, that's a lie from Satan. What value is salt if it's lost its saltiness, Jesus said in Matthew 5.13. So we're called to remain salty. And finally, I think there's a tendency, especially perhaps in Reformed circles, uh, where we mix and move, to place such a high value on the sovereignty of God that we therefore tend to focus primarily just on the justification piece of salvation where you know, Jesus has paid for our sin. Absolutely, it's grace, it's good. And we should, we're right to continue to go back to that. that, that really, it, but we also then believe that sanctification may just happen as a matter of course without any effort or striving on our part. And I think that's uh, false as well. We absolutely do receive pers- uh, positional holiness. We've been talking about this in the uh, portable class, uh, Bible class that uh, Pastor uh, Thomas has been teaching, that, that we receive positional holiness at the time that we receive Christ. I mean, we are covered. We're made holy in the Father's eyes. But we also know that sanctification uh, is a process, and it takes time, and, uh, and it takes effort on our part. So... Um, uh, if we show disregard to Christ by giving ourselves over to sin impen- uh, impenitently, without repentance, and habitually, even if we claim to be Christians, heaven isn't our home. We really need to inspect our hearts and make sure that we are in the faith. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Whole in Our Holiness, uh, notes this, quote, My fear is that as we rightly celebrate and in some quarters now rediscover all that Christ has saved us from, we are giving little thought to and making little effort concerning all that Christ has saved us to. There is a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. That must change. It's not pietism, legalism, or fundamentalism to take holiness seriously. It's the way of all those who have been called to a holy calling by a holy God. End quote. Jesus himself called us to hunger for and thirst for righteousness in Matthew 5, 6. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 14 to 15, uh, makes a clear and undeniable link between this striving to be holy as well as unity in the Christian community. That, that passage says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That is a strong exhortation. We will not see the Lord without striving to be holy and without striving for peace. So brothers and sisters, let's not be lazy in this striving. Let's, let's put, press in. Let's, on the flip side, also not make the error of the Amish, which is that in being exiles and in striving for holiness, it means we shun our culture altogether. 
Jesus did not shrink back from engaging the culture of his time, especially those that were very much into sinful activities of the day. We're not called to be recluses. We're called to go out on mission together. And we're called to be engaged in, but not of, this world. Again, DeYoung defines worldliness in a very helpful way, a very simple way. He says, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Again, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. I think there's more and more of that uh, these days, as, as we all feel. But we must fight against this worldliness in our hearts, in our lives, in our church. We've got to allow the gospel to define our identity rather than the prevailing secular and socially fragmented story that our society tries to tell. In Christ, we have been restored to what we were originally created to be, men and women, boys and girls, teens who live in community and are characterized by sincere brotherly and sisterly love. I loved all the promises that that Denny gave uh, during his introduction. Man, we are inheriting so many rich things as we press in. But there's this critical requirement for us to live in this new community, to enjoy the depth of love and, and fellowship that God has in store for us. And that is that we need to be born again. We need to experience the new birth. Warren Wiersbe says, quote, if we try to build unity in the church on the basis of our first birth, our natural birth, we will fail. But if we build unity on the basis of the new birth, it will succeed. Each believer has the same Holy Spirit dwelling within them, Romans 8, 9. We call on the same Father and share his divine nature. We trust the same word, and that word will never decay or disappear. We have trusted the same gospel and have been born of the same spirit. The externals, this is an important final sentence, the externals of the flesh that could divide us mean nothing when compared with the externals of the spirit that unite us. Let me read that again. The externals of the flesh, our sinful selves, that could divide us and sometimes still do, mean nothing when compared to the externals of the spirit that unite us. So whenever we find division and dissension in the body of Christ, chances are good it's due to some sort of sin, typically the sin of pride. And in some cases, it can be unregenerate people that believe that they are saved. And that's why we need to inspect our hearts and make sure that we're walking in the truth. Our response to this, though, should not be to point fingers at the others that we feel are offending us. It should be humble introspection. I'd like to park on this sin of pride for just a moment because if we're serious about fighting for holiness and unity and fellowship, we've got to be serious about fighting against pride. The fact is there's no other sin in the world that so insidiously enters the church of Christ than, than pride. It was the first sin, the original sin, the lie that caused Lucifer originally to rebel against God and to be thrown out of heaven and become Satan, our greatest enemy. It's the same sin that caused Adam and Eve to sin in in the first place, to question God's goodness and to trust and overestimate their own wisdom and to totally disregard God's word. And it's still subtly at work in each of our lives today, and I'm um, just as guilty as anyone else. In Mere Christianity, which is one of my favorite books, um, the great uh, British author C.S. Lewis dedicates the central chapter of this book to the sin of pride, a chapter that he calls the great sin. And I'm going to quote a section here. 
because it's really good. There is one vice from which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in other people, and of which hardly any people, except maybe Christians, ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it is called humility. If, in fact, you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. Nearly all of those evils in the world which people put down to greed and selfishness are really far more the result of pride. And how is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can then say that they believe in God and appear themselves to be very religious? Well, I'm afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. I suppose it was of these pride-filled people that Jesus was thinking when he said that some should preach about him, some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name, only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. It is a terrible thing that the worst of all vices can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. But you can see why. The other and less bad vices come from the devil working on us through our animal nature, our carnal nature, the black sins, as Luther called them. But pride does not come through our animal nature at all. It's one of the white sins. It comes directly from hell. It is purely spiritual. Consequently, it is far more subtle and deadly For the same reason, pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices or sins. Teachers and parents, in fact, often appeal to a child's pride or self-respect, as it may be called, to make him or her behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that these sins are beneath his dignity, that is, using pride to um, put down these sins. And the devil laughs. He's perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided that all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. If anyone would like to acquire humility, C.S. Lewis says, I can think, I can, I think, tell him of the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. End quote. Love those words. And man, it hit me hard as I prepared. So let me stop here and ask you, did that make you squirm a bit? Are you actively fighting pride in your life? And let me broaden it a bit more to the ultimate pride, that is pride against God. Have you truly humbled yourself before God Almighty and confessed your sin and repented of your unrighteousness toward him? Have you put Christ Jesus and his righteousness as your new identity? Have you put it on? Inspect your hearts, I ask. Inspect your lives for the fruit of repentance and rebirth. And if you don't see the fruit, it's okay. Humble yourself today and repent. It's not too late. Today is the day of salvation.
For those of you who are believers and who have repented and received Christ as Lord and Savior, let me ask you this. Has pride perhaps insidiously crept its way into your life, into your thinking, to where you are consumed with yourself, where you can't truly love or give to others because you're so consumed by your own sin, your hurts, your worries? Or perhaps you're fixated on the sins of others. Remember your identity. You are a new creation. The Son has set you free. You are free indeed, John 8, 36. You are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, Romans 6, 18. And as Paul reminds us in Acts 13, 38, and 39, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We are dead to sin. Remembering this can be a challenge. Satan gives us short memories, likes to uh, get us distracted and not thinking about the promises of God. So let's move on to the fourth and final point that Peter makes here in chapter 1. And this uh, theme number 4 is from verses 22 to 25 where he talks about how gospel-fueled holiness is a group project. Gospel-fueled holiness is a group project. As we've just seen, pride is the antithesis of Christian love and fellowship. Peter's call to be holy comes to a climax in 1 Peter um, 1, verse 22. It says, Now that you have been purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Emptying ourselves of pride and filling ourselves humbly and daily with the Spirit of God enables us to be distinctive and noticeably different from the world. And our key distinctive is this, brotherly and sisterly love. You may recall in John 13, before Jesus was uh, to leave his disciples, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is the mark of a disciple of Jesus to have love for the other disciples. So the new birth, this Spiritual birth, the second birth, brings us into a new family, a new community. Verses 22 and 23 talk about that new community. It's an alternative community of believing. And this new family is God's demonstration of the gospel, tangibly here on earth, pointing people up to Jesus who is at his right hand. It is the beginning of and the pointer to the new world that will come and be our inheritance one day. Steve Timmis and Tim Chester in their uh, really good book called Everyday Church state it this way, quote, The word translated exiles literally means without house, without home, or without family. Christians have become without home in the culture. Roman society was viewed as a family with Caesar as a patriarch. Their new birth meant that Peter's readers had to move outside of this cultural family. They had become outsiders, homeless, unfamily. But they are now being built into a spiritual home, into a new family. We are not called to live as isolated individuals following Jesus alone on the margins of culture. We are called being built into a new home and born again into a new family. And when Peter instructs us in 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23 to love one another earnestly with a sincere love from a pure heart, Peter is not just talking about Sunday morning service. He is talking about living as a community that actively loves one another sincerely from the heart and is deeply engaged in the lives of each other, sharing life together. He's hanging, uh, talking about dropping in on people on the way home from work or hanging out with people and praying after a bad day or simply retelling of a great conversation you had with a neighbor. 
The word deeply has the sense of fervent or constant. And in the, wor- in the face of worldly rejection, we are to love one another with constancy, commitment, and loyalty, end quote. We cannot fight sin in our lives, especially the sin of pride, without loving, caring brothers and sisters around us, helping us to see those things in our lives that we sometimes cannot see, reminding us of the gospel when we've stumbled, and we will continue to stumble. We had a rough day, speaking of stumbling, we had a rough day at the Plath House on Friday. Uh, Lots of strife among the kids, impatience and anger from the parents, and um, disrespect coming back from the kids. When it seemed like it was all spinning out of control, we took a step back and we cooled down and we spoke the gospel to one another. Yes, there were consequences and there were tears, but there was also confession, repentance, and reconciliation. And that's so beautiful, so different from the world. We don't have to walk around carrying those wounds um, that, that we give to one another. We have the hope of the gospel. Praise God. So this is the distinctive mark as a body of Christ, the unconditional love and grace that we give to one another because we all need that grace, and the care that we show to one another as a community of believers now, we believe wholeheartedly as an elder team, and, and, and um, we, we believe this wholeheartedly as an elder team. And this is the purpose of life groups here at Christ Redeemer Church. Life groups provide us the close environment in the midst of these, you know, our uber-fragmented lives where we're so busy running in different directions, we need a place to come to um, where we can get into one another's lives in a humble and loving way Come alongside and help each other as we limp toward this finish line of this earthly race. They provide us a group to spur us on to love and good deeds. And they also enable us to go places on mission where we can preach the gospel and demonstrate Christ's love in places where we'd normally probably lack the courage or faith to go on our own. So they are critical to living a Great Commission obedient life. And what more rewarding life could there be on this earth than to see others come into the body of Christ through our, um, through Christ working through us? So, in the spirit of Peter's first chapter of his first letter, let me just ask and challenge you Have you joined a life group here? If not, join one. There's a sign up sheet out on the welcome table. F- feel free to fill it out. Are you in a life group? Well, then commit to that group wholeheartedly. Participate joyfully. Encourage others. Be proactive in initiating with one another. Confess sin freely. God has provided the means for you to enjoy the blessings of his special unconditional love that can only be enjoyed by fellow believers and followers of Jesus. Don't miss out on that opportunity to be blessed and to bless others. So in conclusion, let me just say this. I'm thankful for the way that the Lord took Peter from a savior-denying, foot-in-the-mouth, impulsive disciple that I can really relate to, to a bold, gospel-declaring apostle just in the matter of a few years. And so thankful for the wisdom that Jesus imparted to Peter during the few years that they walked together here on this earth, but even further than that, that the, the spirit of Jesus that came on Pentecost imparted to Peter and the rest of the apostles thereafter. Let's be humble to receive the wisdom that, uh, of this man that walked with Jesus. Peter is calling us to live circumspectly in this world, in it but not of it. 
He's calling us to place our hope in the surety of the gospel and not in the fleeting things of this earth. He's calling us to holiness, rooted in humility and in Christian community. Let's be humble. Let's be wise to accept this call. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that um, you can speak to hearts, Lord, through um, broken vessels like me, Lord. You can use your word, Lord, to change hearts. And I pray that you would do that. I, I just ask, Lord, that we would be a people, that the mark of Christ Redeemer Church would be the love that we have for one another, that people, when they enter our midst, Lord, when they see us out and about, um, would uh, just be taken by the love that we show. And, and we know that that love comes from you, Lord, from your spirit. So pour out that love on us. I pray, Lord, if there are any that have heard this message this morning and are, are feeling resistant to uh, this call to tamp down pride in our lives, I just pray that they would, uh, they would just give it up and, and would humble themselves before you under, under the, the truth of the gospel, Lord, and surrender themselves and their lives uh, to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.